Welcome to the Cash and Carry podcast, where we help you make wiser financial decisions and build better money habits to increase your wealth, health, and happiness. Today is for all the single ladies and gents. We're looking at an often missed topic in the money media, and that's personal finance for singles. If this doesn't sound like you today, think again. Many of us will spend stretches of time solo living, either by choice or circumstance. I've got the authors of the Canadian Guide to Personal Finance for Singles to help. Julie Shipley Strickland is a Senior Wealth Advisor with Wellington Altis Private Wealth. And Brian Borzakowski is a business journalist and founder of All Caps Content. Let's do this. Hello, Julie and Brian. Welcome to the pod. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. So I got your book. And the thing that surprised me, it's it, it says it's for Canadians, but it's quite broad. It could help people, you know, in other areas besides the great white north. Yeah, totally. And I think it's also broader. Like the book is uh, uh, for singles, but there's a lot mm-hmm. of good general advice in there too uh, around personal finance. So I think it kind of does have a much broader appeal than the uh, than the title, which obviously is you know it's it is for singles and for and not just people who are. I've always been single, but people have gone divorced, people who's had a partner pass away. So it covers all of that, which is is broader than singles. Um, yeah, which I liked because, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to kind of talk about a lot of general personal financial advice in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that I keep getting asked is, you know, a lot of partners now keep their finances independent. And so this is one way where you can really focus on what you want to garner from your finances and your wealth. Um, So I've had some very happily coupled up people that have said to me, you know, I really appreciated the book and focusing on my own finances within partnership. So it fits there too. Yeah, I was, um, I was happy to see it because I know that personal finance, uh, thinking about the, the single person in mind, it's a huge area and it's often missed by the media. You know, it's interesting you say that because uh, it's true. And I actually, you know, I've been writing about personal finance for like, I don't know, crazy amount of years now. Um, I will not say out loud because uh, um, I can't even do the math in my head anymore. But um, I really have not written about single personal finance and singles, um, I think ever, like rarely if ever. So this was kind of new a bit for me too. Um, and I think to your point, that is largely because it isn't really talked about in that way. Some people are doing it more now, but it definitely is an underexplored area. So hopefully this book can help with that. But it was interesting to me too, to kind of explore um, a topic that I haven't done that much on. And I don't know, Julie, in your practice, I'm sure you, you I mean, you, I don't know how you see that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a different planning process for someone that's single, right? Um, and again, whether recently divorced or, or long-time divorced, chosen single or bereaved, there's different planning steps that we can incorporate. Um, but it isn't something that's talked about. And often that's one of the first discussions I get when I'm meeting with a prospective client is, you know, do you know the rules around um, it being different and the planning being different for someone that doesn't have a partner? to leave things to that sort of thing. So yeah, it's definitely something good that we were able to dig into it and kind of explain what's going on with that um, area, I guess is the best way. I mean, I, I was reading through the stats in your book and I, I looked in the States too, and it says about 28% of Canadian households are considered one person. And that's more than any other type of arrangement across the country. And 50% of those single solo livers uh, are women. In one-person households, because, well, we tend to outlive men. And it's the same in the States. Uh, Nearly 50% of U.S. adults are single. So it's a surprise to me that we're missing this huge group of people that could really use some financial advice. I mean, I can't remember when the census numbers came out, which one just offhand, but I do remember when this came, when this stat came out and we saw, you know, the proportion of one person households had, had now overtaken most of the other categories. Um, It was surprising, shocking. There was a lot of news around that. And I remember seeing that and being like, this is really interesting. It's, it's really changed. I mean, society's changed a lot and you're now seeing that reflected in the numbers. So yeah, it is a big area that people aren't paying attention to, but it is still in some ways just getting started because I think it was, 
um, only in the last census where you saw some of these numbers really shift in a big way. They've been shifting over time, but um, but it, it, you know it's still relatively new. Like we've had years and years of you know the uh, the, the husband, the wife, the two, the boy, the girl, kid, the picket fence, the white picket fence, right? That was um, right. What it's been for a long time, at least the perception that's what it's been, and now that's changing. And I think there's going to be a whole a whole bunch of different areas that uh, personal finance could apply to that this book can help with, but there could be other books um, as well. It's just, it's, it was interesting to me to see how much that's changed. Are there areas where singles may be more vulnerable? I mean, everywhere it seems that society is surrounded by couples. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we touch on a few things in the book for sure, but, you know, one area is that they're, they're definitely not maybe bouncing financial advice or financial ideas off of, you know, someone that that can relate to their situation. So I think having some guidance and some support in that area, whether it's a book or a trusted friend or whatnot, I think, I think that's definitely one area Two, spending is different. And so is saving, right? When you're only relying on one income and yourself, and there's really no other opportunity for a second person to be bringing money into that household in the stage you're in right now, you know, that puts an additional pressure and stress on on the single person as well so i think you know acknowledging that and then having some sort of support there for them i think is really important too so i think we definitely tried to touch on that in the book yeah and i think that's actually a big um and an interesting kind of change in society too is this two-income household um and there you know the world is now more set up for that i mean a wealth um the wealth gap is increasing for lots of reasons but part of it is you have now two people working sometimes two people working in really you know well paying jobs and when you pull that money together you really can kind of do a lot more um with your combined finances than you can with one so it really does um have an impact when we're, we're sort of living in a world now where one regular healthy income doesn't necessarily go as far as it used to be. So that is a struggle because um, how do you, how do you kind of do what you want to do when, you know, the people next door have two incomes that are kind of doing the same thing. And we, one of the things that we noted in the, in the, there was a chapter on just different expenses and, you know, we looked up like hotel expenses, right? Like a hotel room, a hotel room for one person is the same as two people. Like there's almost no difference. Um, there were a few places that I looked up where, where we looked up where there was like a slight difference, but um, it was really almost always the same. So right there, I mean, that's just like an example of how, you know, two people can pay this, you know, half each, each sort of has their a half for a hotel room where one person has to pay the full price. And, and there's a lot of other examples like that. Well, there's taxes. I mean, so many of uh, so much of the income tax benefits are for couples, right? You've got the spousal RSP or a spousal IRA. I mean, it's everywhere in the tax code, too. Yeah. I mean, even if you're living in the same household as someone, right, there's different tax credits if you file together, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely still targeted, I would say, predominantly for some sort of coupleton coupledom and partnership, right? It's not, we're not, it's not targeted for singles. Um, but with those stats, who knows what's going to happen, right? Uh, you know, we get updates every year to the, to the tax act and that sort of thing. So we'll see, we'll see if it starts to evolve a little bit. I mean, it's crazy areas too. I was grocery shopping and it's food. I mean, you know, something as simple as food where you got the family size, the jumbo size, the bulk size, right? If you're single, and you're going to buy something perishable, um, you're going to have to stick with smaller sizes and those might be so, uh, more expensive. So it's kind of like everywhere in life, uh, singles come up and they're like, hey, that's a, a better deal if if you're living with someone or you're, you're in a couple, right? Yeah, for sure. I think that's a big one, especially now with inflation, food inflation is continuing to rise and hopefully that will reverse soon. But, um, you know, how you are buying, uh, you know, yeah, smaller sizes can be more expensive. Um, you're not getting the deals, the two for two for one or two for a cheaper price. Or even if you're buying like a bag of apples, like, um, you know, it's you're buying it for yourself versus uh, a bunch of people. Like there's a whole bunch of, yeah, different things just like that, where it, it sort of doesn't quite even out. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to get like, um, I don't know, yeah, different kind of portions at different costs. Um, that could, maybe that'll change in the future, but but I don't know. Well, and then there's home ownership, right? The the cost is soaring. So what do you guys advise for single people to do about home ownership? Talk to the advisor. Well, we're going to start out by saying that, you know, everyone's personal circumstance is different. And so you need to evaluate your own personal circumstance 
circumstances before you take any advice from anyone. All right, now next up. Uh, <laughs> I think you, you, you know, in terms of owner, ownership, even with two incomes, it's becoming challenging, right? So, you know, I think it depends on, sure, one person probably needs less space. So smaller places, probably arguably a bit more affordable. Um, but, you know, are people taking longer? And I don't have the data on that. Are people taking longer to purchase a place that are single versus in couples? Probably given the cost. Are there more singles maybe in more remote or rural areas outside the major cities because it's more cost effective to purchase there? I'm not sure, but it would be an interesting stat to see. I don't think there's really any advice that I have to give in that area. I think for me, it's more, what's your circumstance? What are you looking to accomplish? I do, however, find that some of my younger clientele that are single aren't purchasing or don't see the same value in purchasing if I go you know, two generations ahead. So if I, if I speak to my 20 or 30-year-old clients versus speaking to my 70-year-old clients, my 70-year-old would have always had a home and, you know, they talk about the 25% interest rates in the early 1980s and all that kind of stuff. Right. But the younger generation isn't uh, always as eager to purchase as, you know, maybe that generation. So that's been interesting as an advisor to kind of hear the different views, pros and cons um, for why or why not they're purchasing. So I think some views are changing. I think some of it could be the affordability. Um, but I think it's also their beliefs and what they, what they want to do with their money. Yeah, I mean, even as a couple, I found the housing situation uh, just, you know, crushing. I was living in Toronto for a number of years, and even with two incomes, it was it was a challenge because our rent was three thousand dollars a month, and that's for a, a two bedroom apartment plus mm-hmm. you know child expenses. So, you know, as a single, that is a crushing expense that many, you know, would be crushed by. So I looked at other living arrangements, you know, there's the co-living, which is the new way of saying uh, roommates, you know, then there's co-op living. But I think, it, you know, it's it's a challenge for where singles should, you know, set up home. Yeah. I mean, I think that to your point, I think, I mean, what is interesting is that there are different arrangements coming out. People are sharing homes. I had a friend before they, they got married, he got married, he, he moved in with a friend and they bought their house together um, and they eventually sold it and made a little money off it and took that into their, you know, relationships. But, um, but it was interesting to see. And I think we're seeing more of that. I think we'll see different arrangements, more, um, uh, you know, living with parents longer, uh, multifamily situations. And we're already starting to see that. So I think that's sort of a general trend just broadly for all couple singles. But I think, you know, on this on, on the single side, if, if they're, yeah, I mean, the, the, you have to pay for it all yourself. So maybe there will be other situations that arise that kind of benefit everybody. Um, but for sure, this is a bigger conversation, I think, just on housing affordability, as Julie said. But it, But I do like seeing kind of the creativity that kind of people come up with um to make their situations work um you know well for today yeah and on that note actually calgary just passed certain areas of the city where uh, we have detached garages depending on the neighborhood and they're allowing to build suites above those detached garages so just a lot more creativity a lot more affordability availability there and they're trying to make this denser is one of their premises behind this but i thought that was a really neat idea because you can have a pretty neat suite the garage is right underneath that kind of thing could be interesting so i like the creativity I know lots of single single people, whether they've been divorced or who are you know are single and hadn't been in a, in a marriage before uh, or a long term relationship, and they can they have out they have homes they can't get them mm-hmm. they can't buy them, um, so I just want to make sure like you know it's not out of reach for people. Um, it depends on kind of how you save and jobs and all sorts of stuff, but there are lots of people who 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 can do it. Um, so yeah, but you know not maybe buying the giant house that needs uh, multiple multiple family members. Well, Brian, you mentioned trends. I mean, have you seen any other trends in the single space that um, that is going on? Um, I mean, I think people are staying, I, nothing you know different than people know. I think there are a lot of people who are staying single longer, finding, uh, and not only by choice too, not just um, because that's their situation, but because they want to stay single, they want to be more independent. They, they don't, you know, they don't want to have a sort of the traditional kind of relationship. And um, so you're seeing more of that. And I think that's partly what's being reflected in the stats can numbers that we were talking about earlier is just people kind of taking control of their own life, maybe in, in a different way that they didn't, uh, 
maybe wasn't accepted before. Um, and I think that has the potential to change a lot of the different things we're talking about. Um, you know, will there be more options for all sorts of different kinds of families and housing and food and hotel room choices? I don't know, you know, and the prices. Um, uh, that's probably the main thing that I've seen. I don't know, Julie, if you've, you're, you're probably closer to working with people who are single. Um, so any anything that you've seen? Yeah, I think, you know, I was thinking about this last week. I had a new client sign on and actually... Um, they're not married, they're engaged, and they are actually both planning on keeping their own properties. So uh, getting married later in their 30s, um, and they both really like their homes. And um, there is, uh, the gentleman does have kids from previous marriage. And um, the woman just, you know, she she wants to live there sometimes and that sort of thing, but she also wants to keep her own space. Um, and so they gave me two different addresses. And so I, you know, went through things and just Anyways, the rationale behind it was really interesting. You know, she's been living on her own for 20 plus years and she's really comfortable with that, really enjoys that, likes that. Um, doesn't necessarily want to be living full time with a new husband and two step kids who she adores and thinks is great. But so she's just going to keep her place as well. Um, and it's been a great investment for her. So she doesn't want to get rid of that. And I thought that was a great perspective from, you know, from her own independence. She really feels confident in that. Um, so I really liked that. So you're seeing that, whereas... I would probably already say 20, 30 years ago, that would have not been acceptable, right? Whereas now I was like, oh, that's a great arrangement. Sounds lovely. Peaceful, quiet little place. Can I have the code to get in? <laughs> go sit there and enjoy some solitude. You will not show this podcast to your husband. Just, just in case. <laughs> oh no, he would, he, he would be like, go, go, please go. Yes, yes, go have quiet. <laughs> you can set up your own Zoom studio there. That's for sure. Right? <laughs> be all quiet. Be great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so okay. yeah, I guess that's one thing that came to mind that I'm seeing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've only seen it really with one client, but I thought it was interesting. So, okay. So one of the chapters you guys have is on budgeting. I hate it, but I do it and no one really loves it. But again, you have to do it. So you guys recommend two different options. You have the 70, 20, 10 rule, and you have something called the three bucket strategy. How do these work? Okay, well, we've got two different things, a 70, 20, 10 rule. I could do a reading from the book. Just, no, just kidding, in my uh, best Shakespeare voice. But um, so, this, so <laughs> essentially, essentially, both of these are kind of three buckets. Um, and the first one, you know, these are rules of thumb won't work for everyone. But the first one is taking 70% of your paycheck and putting it towards your monthly expenses. So cover all that off. Um, you want to kind of put it, lay out a budget as well. So you know how much you should be allocating to each of these things. Um, then 20% of your salary and putting it to investments. That is often a lot to ask. Maybe, I don't know, Julie, but like putting 20% of your money to investing is might be a little mm -hmm. high. And then 10% to pay down debt. Um, it's not perfect. You know, in a world where we're in today, where interest rates are higher, you might want to actually maybe flip those and put the debt, uh, put more money down on debt, especially high interest rate debt, especially if returns are a little more muted today. But that's essentially sort of an easy way to kind of think about your money, 70 kind of day to day, 20 for the future, 10% on debt. Then there's a three bucket strategy, which is a bit more of an investment strategy, but um, it's similar in that um, you have three buckets. One is for long-term investing. I think of it like, like water, like water spilling into each bucket. Um, you have your long, you have your long-term investment strategy. That's going to be your future growth. At some point, you kind of take some of those gains, you put it into your intermediate bucket. Some of that's bonds, some of that a little bit more of a diversified basket. Um, and then you're pulling maybe off dividends and, and uh, income from that and putting it into your kind of day-to-day, -day, taking that out, putting it into your day-to-day -day expenses. So there's always something growing um, and there's always kind of income coming in that you can use. And uh, I don't need compliance to, to run through this with me. So hopefully that's okay. <laughs> but Julie, if you- Brian if you... said this, he's not licensed. <laughs> um, um, I guess, is gonna... that right? Did you get that right, Julie? We're just gonna, we're gonna make a couple of small, very minor tweak from the from um, the advisor. <laughs> listen to her, not me. <laughs> okay, you guys are crazy. 2010 rule is very general and very broad. Okay, uh, it really depends on age and stage of life. The other thing is, I often get from clients, you know, paying down debt includes your mortgage, and your mortgage is often a lot more than 10 percent of your income. So it's it's something to say that, you know, 50, 60, 70% of your day-to-day, -day, you know, bi-weekly paycheck should be taken care of day-to-day, -day, bi-weekly things. So monthly things, that sort of thing. 
Okay. That last 30% is really discretionary, not discretionary. Like we're going to Mexico discretionary. Like I have a high mortgage and I'd like to pay it down a quick, quick, a bit quicker. Therefore I will put more into that. You know, I'm getting closer to retirement. Maybe I want to put more into savings, this sort of idea. So there's a lot of flexibility in that space. Okay. In terms of the three bucket strategy, that really depends what stage you're on. So, you know, younger clientele wouldn't even have often a third bucket. They might have a savings account that they're keeping, you know, for their trip to Mexico or for a rainy day or an opportunity, but then they're going to kind of have two buckets. One's a little bit more medium and one's a bit more long-term. When you're 35, 40, 45, all of it's long-term because you're retiring at 55, 60, 65, whenever you decide to slow down, retire, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but in retirement is when you would really practice those three, but those three buckets more, shall we say stringently, because you want a couple of years income in case we go through a 2020 or a 2008, you don't want to be drawing down on your investments. So you'd like some cash. That's going to be your shorter term bucket. Your medium term, I often think of this three to five years. So things that could come up in the next few years, but after your cash is depleted, that's probably one to two years. And then your long-term Remember, if you're 70, 75 and retired, as an advisor, I want to make sure your income's lasting until 100, right? I don't need you running out of money at 85. So I still have a fairly long time horizon, which Brian was alluding to. That's where dividends go in. That's where you can reinvest because it's really for a longer term uh, play, let's say, when we're looking at your overall portfolio and investment strategy. See, yeah. just minor tweaks, Brian. Just <laughs> What she said, what she said. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's right. I mean, I think the, you're right. The bucket is, yes, certainly right for kind of older. Um, it is. I think it's actually more. It is more of a retirement strategy. It's more um, of a retirement right. strategy. But someone younger should still have, obviously, a savings account in case an opportunity emergency comes from comes up that you you either want to take advantage of or you've got something where you need liquid cash, right? So it, I do think it's an important thing to also have, but you may not really have much differentiating between that medium and long-term strategy. Those those might be pretty similar. Is there is there a, a thought about how a single could approach um, either contributing to their RSP or tax-free savings account or both? Is this a, a, a single concern they should think about? Oh, definitely. Like, I think that's kind of a, that's, you know, anybody that wants to slow down and or fully retire at some point needs to be looking at their savings options. And so if they're an employee somewhere, you know, maximizing that TFSA and that RSP, that RSP is one of their few deductions they're going to have. So it, it's pretty important to be using that as long as their income warrants it, right? Um, if you're making 30, 40,000 a year, you probably don't have as much need for an RSP as someone maybe making 90 or 100,000. If you're making 30 or 40, that's when we should really be digging into that TFSA because we really wanna grow a nice pool of funds that grows tax-free. And then if we fast forward to kind of retirement income, you know, a lot of what people receive for retirement income is taxable. So if you look at, you know, CPP, OAS, any sort of pension, any, uh, you know, RSP income, all becomes taxable to them. However, the TFSA is one of the few that, you know, if they need to draw on a lump sum in retirement, that doesn't hurt their OAS. Um, so pretty important to have that from an overall planning perspective um, and definitely something we're prioritizing for clients for sure. Yeah, it's key. Are there some other financial strategies a, a single person uh, single persons should also consider uh, maybe with investing, like building a portfolio? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's necessarily, you know, when we build portfolios, we really look at risk. We look at timeline. Um, we look at, look at ability to weather the ups and downs, right? So kind of tolerance of the market. That doesn't really partake into a, a someone that's single or, or in a partnership. I do find that often in partnerships, opposites. So you do have one that's a bit more conservative, a bit more cash heavy, and one that's a bit more aggressive and long-term and, and maybe I shouldn't use aggressive, just like assertive with the market. So of course in, in with, you know, a single person, they would probably only have one, one of those sides to them perhaps, but I don't, I really think that, you know, a good advisor should be, should be investing based on risk and tolerance and that sort of thing. So I don't think, I'm not sure single and couple really plays into it as much. Um, it's just more something where you're targeting your goals and making sure that your investments line up to what you're trying to achieve with your wealth goals. 
I think where some of the differences could come in, and, and Julie can kind of pick up on this after I make this statement, because we've been talking sort of about single people in the context of people who have single and not been in a relationship or not with a partner. But, we, you know, as again, the book does talk a lot about kind of divorce and death. And so in those situations, it is different because you could be getting um, an inheritance. What do you do with that? That's a whole other discussion as to how, how do you actually invest that, make that money last, estate planning. How, and that's in the book, estate planning. How do you actually pass that down? In a divorce, if you're getting... Uh, um, you know, um, money from the other partner or, you know, support, child support. Um, how do you use that? I mean, maybe that that's your day-to-day -day expenses. So what you're earning can go into, um, into, into the RSP. Like it, it, there's more facets around sort of how to use that money if there are other income sources coming in based on kind of your situation. So, um, you know, in that case, you know, there could be other, other options or just things to consider. Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, you've mentioned uh, becoming a widow a few a few times. Do you have advice for women whose husbands have handled the household finances and they're now single? Ah, yeah. I, it's it's so interesting because I I feel like as the baby boomers age, we're seeing so I'm seeing so much of that, right? Because traditionally, that generation it was male dominated who handled the finances, and. Um, I think you need to find someone that you trust. I think that's first and foremost. I think you need to understand that there's a lot you might not know and that's okay, you can learn it. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I find when these this clientele comes to me and I'm working with them is that there's a lot of feelings of, I should have known this, I should have asked that. Why didn't I take care of it? Why didn't I learn this? It's like, you know what, it, that's okay. You can learn at any age. So I, I think having a bit of compassion and empathy for oneself in those situations is really important. Um, and I think finding an advisor who's prepared to educate you and support you through that journey. Um, I, I've got clients definitely in that space. And I mean, my, my dad passed away. Um, my dad was 58 and my mom was 55. Um, so this was about 10, 11 years ago. And my mom was a nurse, a professor of nursing at McGill, Banya College, like very accomplished woman, but just never touched the finances because my dad was an advisor. So why, why would she, right? And even afterwards, I sat down with her and she was just a very smart woman, my mom, and, and still overwhelmed with the amount of that she had to learn. So, and, you know, as her daughter, I'm helping advise her and that sort of thing. So it was an overwhelming process for her. And I must say, she learned a lot. Uh, she, she knows so much now. It's awesome. Um, and she supported some of her friends that have gone through that since then. So I, I think it's important to, to really sit in compassion and empathy in that space because, um, and, and find someone that can support you because it's, it's a lot, um, but you can also do it. So, yeah. What's interesting, there's, I, I was looking, just looking at the book for a sec, see if I can find the stat. I think it might be in here, but there is a stat that is, talks about how many um, women switch advisors after their husband passes away or because the advisors um, have this one relationship and they don't actually know how to really talk to women and, and sort of understand their needs. And that is changing. Um, so I think, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but if, if their advisors are listening, I think, you know, then Julie could probably agree if she's allowed to. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, more advisors should be picking up on this and saying, hey, this is a two person partnership, we should bring in the family, we should bring in your spouse. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And, and at the same time, the men listening to this too should say, okay, well, that's an outdated um, kind of idea that women shouldn't mm -hmm. know about the finances. More women are making money now, it's their money too, even if it's just shared. So um, they should be bringing in women into the, their, their spouse into the conversation. Um, and so um, you don't want to, I mean, I think, you know, you try and um, protect your family. If someone, if the, you pass away, you have life insurance. Well, the same way you should be protecting your spouse by bringing them into the conversations because mm. who knows what's going to happen. And, and I think, I think that will change as, you know, younger generations and couples kind of um, hopefully take a bit more of an equal role. I think that's, you know, changing, or at least the ideas around traditional household roles are shifting. And I, and I think that hopefully will lead to more co conversations with couples, but um, it is a problem for sure. If, if you, if, if, the person, you know, your spouse passes away or, or gets divorced and you have no idea. But um, if someone is listening to this and that is them, I mean, they should say, show me, show me how this works now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say with my younger generations, I'm definitely seeing equal counterparts on both sides of 
the couple wanting to be involved. Some may take the lead more than others, um, but I am finding definitely 100% the woman wants to be involved and it's awesome. Like it's fantastic. They're interested, you know, they'll let their husband maybe make a couple decisions or, you know, be the lead on it, let's say, but they want to know what's going on, how things work. They want to be educated. It's awesome. So but, I think it's definitely changing. Yeah. And the, and the funny thing is about this is that I, there have been stats too, and I wish I could remember the numbers, but like women, a lot of women do actually take care of the household bills. Like they know mm -hmm. how much is being spent on different things. And so there is this idea that only men know all this stuff. Men, I think, do the investing historically. And that is, you know, really growing your investments. So that gets a lot of attention, but women aren't, um, have no clue. Like a lot, a lot of women are very attuned to kind of what the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. spending is. So that combination needs to happen where everybody's kind of in tune with all parts of it. Yeah. Now I see that too in my readership. I see, uh, you know, the younger generations, uh, the millennials and the Gen Xers as well, they are partnerships when it comes to the money. But it's, it's pretty common that I get an email from a boomer who is newly widowed or newly divorced and uh, they all want to do the same thing. And, and that's fire their financial advisor because that advisor only spoke to their husband and didn't include them in a lot of the financial decisions. So, I mean, if you're if you're an accountant or a lawyer or a financial planner or whatever, you know, you got to include the women in the conversation because there's going to be a wealth transfer and they're going to be more than happy to uh, take their money elsewhere. <laughs> $86 trillion. I just uh, actually wrote this this morning working on the intergenerational wealth transfer. $86 trillion globally is going to switch over in between now and 2045. Um, so there's going to be a lot of these conversations happening with advisors How do you, and, and people are going to be switching. I thought you just made that number up. I think you gave it some good backing that you said you wrote it this morning, but I just wrote it down on my notepad out of thin air. Yeah. So you see good. a lot of different numbers. I so think good. the latest one I saw was 86, but there are, there are other ones. Let's go for it. I think it, that sounds like a phenomenal number to me. I'm in. Sign me up. Yeah. I, where do I get some of that? I, I don't know. know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, you. I'm, I'm into it. I'm into it. So uh, one thing a lot of my readers uh, don't prepare for is, is no one likes to think about becoming single if they're in a, a partnership and they're not seeking a divorce or a separation. A lot of people do come become widowed at all different ages, right? It, should, should this be something we plan ahead for? Is this you know part of life that um, we should be planning and how would we do that, right? Like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to think about, oh, my husband's insurance is here and and this is the credit card there. I mean, we do take uh, take certain bills and have ownership of each of them. So there's like a lot spread out here. You know, the safety deposit key. I was just thinking about that the other day after reading your book. I'm like, I have no idea where that is. And we're a joint couple we are in a partnership here and there seems to be you know maybe there needs to be a conversation each couple has to have i don't know where my safety deposit box key is either i'm gonna go <laughs> after both of you are great right now goodness gracious um i think it's something that definitely you know i, I speak to clients about quite a bit not the safety deposit key that i haven't <laughs> touched but apparently i need to add it to our our fact find list so I'll, I'll get on that um i think one of the things yeah i mean and i preface it i say like this meeting isn't going to be the most fun meeting you've ever had in your life where we gotta like talk about wills get something set up make sure you're organized in that realm where is all the insurance what will happen because traditionally, I mean, this is the latest stats I saw, and I'm not making up these numbers, Brian, um, is that women were pushing about 88 years old in North America as their lifespan. And men, they had reached 80, and then COVID, they're, they're back down to 79, last I saw. So it's, well, I don't know what happened there, but we'll, we'll leave that one. Um, so, you know, on average, women will live about 10 years um, longer than men if all things else being equal. Um, so it is something where, yeah, some planning needs to be done. Some, some knowledge has to be had, you know, it's not like I know, you know, every password for my husband's bank and all of this kind of stuff, but anything that's joint, I definitely know. Um, I know where things are for us to be able to get, you know, if I need passwords, if I need codes, if I need to be able to get in, um, you know, secondary people need to be on bank accounts. You, you need to have, 
things a little bit more sorted. And sure, it's not the most fun, but it also does give you a huge peace of mind. So there is that balance there that, yeah, it's on the to-do list and, you know, might not, might not top the most exciting thing, but it does top peace of mind. So I have a, I I have a folder. Yeah. I have a folder yeah. with like life insurance documents. Tell my wife where it's at. I should probably remind her. Um, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, can, can I swear? It's a shitty conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is. We're, we're not, on, we're not on like a terrestrial broadcasting here. It's a shitty yeah. conversation. And, and even, and, yeah. and, you know, and, um, but there are times where you can have those conversations when people pass away. It sort of makes me think about this stuff. Hey, it could happen to us. Um, I think the advisor's role is to kind of push that too and make sure those things are, uh, are, are taking place. Um, and that's why more advisors, I think, need to bring both in the conversation. So if something does happen, but, but it is, it is, it is hard. And I think, you know, as I get older, I think about it more, but then it's one of those things where like, I need to, I'm a journalist, I need deadlines. So I'm not, I'm hopefully going to die tomorrow, but um, so I, yesterday. Keep pushing, I keep pushing yesterday. Yes. We don't yes. say tomorrow. We say yesterday. But if I was dead <laughs> yesterday, then I wouldn't be able to, but you're not. So it's not going to happen. Right. That, I, yeah. I, I need the pressure to get these things done, but, um, but you know, it just, I, hopefully it just happens. Cause I don't want to be, um, put anyone out in my family that, uh, you know, that would be the worst thing. So, um, we are not perfect in those conversations, but we're trying. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking too, it doesn't matter if you're married or, uh, not married. I think about the, um, beneficiaries of all my accounts or, uh, succession on my TFSA. I mean, this is a, a, something everyone should think about. I, I would, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I definitely. For me, the role is an advisor. I mean, that's that's part of our role is to make sure that that you know the eyes are dotted and the T's are crossed on those sorts of things. So, I mean, we don't open a single account without having a successor holder or beneficiary on it. So, you know, it's just got to become part of the process with whomever you're working with. That that's top of mind. Right. Um, the next thing is we don't obviously do wills, but, uh, you know, I have a couple of lawyers that I, you know, send out to clients and let them choose who's the best fit for them. But I, I think it's pretty important. You, you don't want to die intestate. So you don't want to die without a will. Um, things get real messy real fast. So it's it's, again, not a pleasant topic, not something fun. But I, I can't stress the peace of mind. And that's just client feedback. That's having my own things aligned and um, properly organized. And, and uh, I think it's, it's pretty important to make sure that that's done. We do talk in the book about uh, updating those uh, beneficiaries um, because the mm-hmm. last thing you want to do also is, well, maybe you want to do this, but you may not, is if you into a new partnership and 20 years, you have 20 year marriage and your life insurance is still from 30 years ago and your ex-wife is uh, the beneficiary of the, uh, the money, like you don't want that. So you do have to look those over if you are single and there is no sort of not a spouse to um, pass, you know, pass your estate over to, um, who would that be, you know, think about that. So there are some questions there that even if it's not sort of the typical relationship or something changes that you have to be on top of and, and, and still think about these issues, um, Mm -hmm. doesn't always, it's easy. If it is easier, I guess, if you're married, just, I'll put my spouse, but lots of situations don't have that anymore. So don't forget. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned wills. I'm seeing a lot of the younger generations getting that kind of a will kit or an online uh, will set up type of deal. They're saving money. But what are your thoughts on going the uh, the self-making will route versus actually hiring an estate lawyer? You take that first, Julie. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm not a lawyer. I wouldn't say this is my wheelhouse. I can just go based on experience. Um, you know, if... I've been told by a couple of lawyers, if things are pretty straightforward, some of those will kits are pretty, if they're filled out properly and, you know, the witnessed and all, all the things they, they can be fine. If your situation is pretty straightforward is my, is my understanding again, based on people telling me, not me knowing this on my own. Um, but I mean, I think there's plenty of lawyers who do wills for very reasonable costs. Um, I think often within a will, you get financial power of attorney, medical power of attorney, you know, living will type thing, and then the actual will. So I think three documents in one is a pretty good, pretty good deal as well. Um, and so I, I have many clients who prefer just, again, back to that peace of mind of knowing it's done right, knowing it's done with a lawyer, you know, and then they can park it for a while and don't have to worry about it for 
a few years. So uh, it seems to be that the trend is that more people want that peace of mind. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I don't and know, I, Brian, you got something. Yeah, I, I guess I the same. I mean, I think essentially the more the easier the the less barrier there is to doing these mm -hmm. things, the better it is. And a lot of people find Absolutely. the barriers like I don't even know what lawyer to call. I don't have a lawyer who can do it well, or ask a friend and like they'll give you a number and then okay, I'll get on deadlines. Do it tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. Well, one night you can sit in front of your computer and fill out um, an online will. So I think you know the digitization of the financial industry is a good thing for people where they can get access to products and do things that they need to do easily, just like they're, you know, call a cab and rent a Airbnb or something. So that's good. I think it, the trick is, you know, if you have a complicated estate, if you have multiple properties, businesses, you know, tons of beneficiaries, blended families, like these are the things where you might need um, a professional, a lawyer to uh, actually ask you the right questions and structure something that fits a more complicated need. But my understanding and again, I am not a lawyer. Um, my parents may have one point wished I was, but I'm not. So um, I, 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 uh, my understanding, and I have asked about it, is that it is it is legit. Like it should hold up um, in courts. Um, but again, maybe ask a lawyer just to make sure. But but you know, I know some of the people behind these popular will sites, and they're good people, and. Um, and and so I think they do work. So if it's simple enough, then I think they're they're great. The more people that have wills, the better. Um, and if that's if you can do it digitally, then that's then that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about okay? So at every age and stage, uh, new grad, you know, uh, facing middle age or or older, at some point, and I knew this when I graduated. I didn't know how to find a financial advisor. It was kind of this murky area. And I, I knew I needed help because I didn't have a partner in crime to work together with to, to figure it out. Uh, how should a single go about choosing a financial advisor? This is, uh, I'm presuming I'm taking this one, right, Brian? Yeah. Yes. yeah. Okay. I thought I would just double check that. Um, I would just call Julie. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. Option A, call Julie. Option B, um, you know, at the beginning when you're just starting out, the most important thing is to get into a habit of saving. So, you know, you can actually use your bank, your bank branch, there's great financial planners and that sort of thing at the bank. Okay. Um, I think when you're starting out, you want to get into routine, you want to be saving 10, 20, 30, whatever you can of your income and get into that habit. I think as life becomes more complex, perhaps with a partnership, perhaps with little ones, perhaps as your career expands, maybe you get more properties or, or you're working two jobs or, or things are getting more complicated in your life. You might need to start to find someone within your network that can support you with all of that. You know, accountants are great resources. Lawyers are great resources. You can look up who, which advisors have CFPs online. Um, there's organizations you can look up in Canada to get different names. So there's definitely resources there. But I think I often hear as a barrier to entry, you know, someone that's young might say, you know, I just, I haven't saved. I don't know who to go to that sort of thing. Really. It's as simple as like opening a TFSA at your bank and starting to save regularly. It doesn't matter the amount. It really doesn't. It just matters that you're getting in that habit. And once you've built something up, sure. Then you might need more advice or that sort of thing. But at the beginning it's developing that habit for sure. And I think, I mean, to me, the the really, I mean, we actually cover this in the book. So when you read through it, you can, there are suggestions, but, you know, to me, the two main things, well, number one, the most main thing is uh, uh, connection, personal connection. Do you feel good about this person? Can you talk to them about your life? Like the, the advisors these days aren't just, uh, okay, here's my money go invest it for me to come back when it grows by 20% or something like now it's like shit my um yeah I'm having uh marital problem mar marital problems I I you know I called it a mm -hmm. voice divorce lawyer I really need some help here maybe it's you know my kid is not uh gonna be the uh, uh you know gonna go to Harvard uh, like I thought uh so um how do I you know I don't know maybe you know life changes like and so I think the as a client you have to be very open with your advisor these days more open than you were in the past where um because they need to adjust adjust ask you questions trying to figure out how is it going to affect your financial picture maybe just to talk and like sort something out money and money i don't know everyone who's listened to this podcast i'm sure knows you know money and stress and emotions are all intertwined so sometimes it's just you know i'm i'm feeling really irritable uh why uh, oh because you know i, I don't know i'm 
spending too much right now. You know, these things are connected. So someone you feel good with, I think is important. And the other thing is fees. Fees are always big because when you get a bill at the end of the day, or you don't see where's this money, it can be, uh, you know, you can have a fight over that. So, and advisors are now much more transparent about fees. And I think they used to be in the financial industry as a whole, there's still work to be done there. Um, but I think that um, you can now feel comfortable saying, how are you going to charge me? There's lots of different ways that you can get charged. And they're good and bad pros and cons to each one, but that's the other key. Just understand how you're getting charged and then make sure you have that connection. There's lots of other things, but to me, those are two, two really key ones. I love those, Brian. I think the last, and you said this word, I think the key with it is transparency. You know, your advisor should be able to articulate exactly what you're paying when you're paying it. Sure. There's some market fluctuations, you know, some of my portfolios will fluctuate depending, but we're talking like pennies, they'll fluctuate. You should be able to get a very clear understanding. Just like when you go to the grocery store, you know what you're paying for a bag of apples or a thing of milk. You should be knowing what you're paying for your advisor. So definitely if they say, well, I'm not sure, et cetera, et cetera. No, you should be knowing. It's something in the industry that really needs to be worked on. I agree. So when I was new and starting out, um, I was single and I didn't, again, have a partner to bounce ideas off. And I, I didn't know how things worked. What is the role of a financial planner? Like what, what should I, what expectations should I have and how, how can they help me? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's pretty, pretty broad. And I think depending on the financial advisor or the financial planner and how they want to run their practice and what services they want to offer clients, I think there's a huge breadth. You have a lot that might um, do things like budgeting, um, you know, work on cash flow management, that sort of thing. Um, and then you have other ones that really focus on investment management. Um, and then there's still others that focus more on the planning perspective and your goals and what you're trying to accomplish. So I think it's about finding an advisor that's really aligned to what you're needing support in. Right. Um, a lot of my clients, I, I don't do tons of budgeting with clients. That, that wouldn't be my forte. And a lot of my clients aren't looking to me for that. For example, they're looking to me more for, you know, let's take a bird's eye view of your entire financial picture. Let's look at your risk management, your wealth management, and let's make sure that everything's going together. So all the insurances, um, corporate things, if they have a business, all the personal RSPs, TFSAs, and then kind of blue skying out. What does this look like for retirement income? And then I work a lot with my clients' accountants. So I'm very um, intertwined with how that's working. That's how my practice runs. But a, another planner might be really into budgeting and cash flow and maybe not touching another area. So I, I think it's important for you as, as the client to really understand what you want to get out of that relationship and then find an advisor that matches that because the breadth is huge of what we can do. I see like ideally to me, an advisor is kind of part therapist, part coach. I don't know if, you know, Julie uh, gets paid enough to be a ther my therapist, but um, part therapist, part coach, part, uh, you know. Um, Cheerleader. Yeah. I don't know. Like uh, someone to guide, to make sure to follow, to, mm -hmm. to keep track. So you don't have to make sure you're on track. And when things come up that they can have that conversation that, that to me would be, you know, is a good, is a good advisor. It's not really about the investing these days is how mm -hmm. does that investing kind of fit into, you know, those long-term goals and, and your needs and, and, and how do those things change as your life evolves? I think the last thing that, yeah, I might want to draw on, you know, the past year, the market's been a little bit bumpier for sure. And I think having those conversations of like part therapist, part coach has been, you know, a very big part of my role. 2020 was so quick, right? Like the market dipped kind of middle end of February and we had kind of steadied out and we were rebounding by April, May. Whereas last year in 2022, you know, we saw eight to nine months of a bumpy market for sure. So you had clients that this was getting long. This was, you know, they were really starting to get nervous. And so I think a big role that I play with my clients is just reassuring them and educating them on what's going on. Why are things going the way they're going right now? Um, and so education, I think, is a very big role for my clientele. Um, and I think it should be in most advisors, you know, realm of knowledge is to be, really be educating their clients so that they get that peace of mind. Yeah, I didn't realize when I was starting out that uh, a financial advisor could really help me not be my own worst enemy, right? Like they were guiding me because I was new to the market and investing. I didn't know how it was going to feel to see my money drop 10, 20, 25% based mm -hmm. on what my risk tolerance was at the time. So it was mm -hmm. super helpful to be able to call them up and say, oh my gosh, what is this? 
And they were able to talk me off a ledge. So there was a lot of, uh, as you said, therapy or psychology going on as well. Okay, so guys, we're nearing the end. Um, what have I missed? What should all the single ladies and all the single jets, uh, gents know about that we haven't covered? Read our book. That'll cover everything else. Um, yeah, all the gaps are in there. I mean, one just the thing, you know, learn about money over a year. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, it's hard to um, deal with on a daily basis. It's emotional. It's... Um, it's often hard to keep on the rails. Like things can go off pretty quickly. Um, it's way more fun to spend and save. I know there's stats that show that if you start saving, it's fun, but like, I like saving, but I sure like spending. So sometimes there's like a battle between those two sides. And I guess what I would say is cut yourself some slack. Like um, if you can work with an advisor and, and help get on track, um, these things are hard. So get help. Um, you know, read books like ours and, um, and don't, I would say don't put too much pressure, um, just sort of keep the long, long term in mind. Yeah, I mean, to echo that, I don't really have anything different, but I think have compassion with yourself for this. I think it's, it's not easy. Um, so, and I think one way of, of solving that for lack of a better word is to continuously learn. So chip away getting really well-educated in the financial space, whatever really well-educated means to you. If that means you've got a one-on-one foundation, perfect, great. If that means you could, you know, take over my role, great, sounds good. So I think just get educated to whatever makes you feel really confident and comfortable so you can make the best financial decisions for you. And I think, and I think we're going to a place, I hope, where it is easier and more enjoyable to manage your finances. And, 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 you know, given the digital tools that are out there, um, it's easier to kind of figure it out, uh, what you're, what, what's happening in your life. Um, they're not perfect, but I think they're getting there. Um, it's easier to kind of understand your financial picture. You know, at one point, this stuff would just be over here. You couldn't even budget really. Like you'd have to, you know, now you can, there's places that you can put in your bank account and it sort of splits the categories up for you. Still some work there that you have to make sure, but like put them in different categories, but it's uh, the, the start starting points are there. So we're more empowered. I think than ever before to understand our own finances. Now the trick is just starting and saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to mm -hmm. take control here. And then you supplement all that with someone like Julie or an advisor who, again, it's like their role is changing. It's not just investing you. If you have sort of start off with some of these things yourself, the relationship can really be, um, I think strong and, and can really get more, you can get a lot more out of your financial life. I think now than ever before, if you do it, um, sort of in the right way. No, I'm excited. That's fantastic guys. So your book Personal, the Canadian's Guide to Personal Finance for Signal Singles. It's it's broad, it's encompassing, and it's made me rethink where I'm at in my own relationship and uh, how to prepare better for the future. And I know for singles starting out, there's a lot in there to think about and to help you get on the right track to uh, to have the best situation for your personal finances. So where can we find you? Um, the book is sold exclusively through Indigo, so that's that's mm -hmm. part of it. I, hence, maybe the 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 color. Although the other books in the series don't have uh, are different colors, but uh, yeah, Indigo you can get it from. Um, but you can just if you ever if anyone wants to get in touch, uh, you just Google me and I'll show up somewhere online. Um, Julie has uh, an actual website, and you know so. Uh, yeah, where can she be Brian, find you? <laughs> you're legit too. I promise you. Yeah, I can vouch for you. Um, yeah, so Wealth with Julie is my handle on Instagram. Um, look me up, DM me, would love to chat. Um, and then my website is julieshipleystrickland.com. Excellent. I'll put all that in the notes below. Okay, thank you guys so much for joining me. Until we chat again, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us for free on your favorite podcasting app or watch us on YouTube. And if you want more insights on how to improve your finances, you can sign up for the Cash and Carry newsletter at squawkfox.com. I'm Carrie K. Taylor.